We start, though, with what is happening in Ottawa. Shame on you! Shame on you! Shame on you! Police have every tool they need, and their indications were now starting to see progress. The people occupying Ottawa have been given plenty of time to leave peacefully. They know their consequences for not doing so. And I continue to encourage everyone to leave immediately. I have every confidence in our law enforcement to bring an end to this, and they continue to have my full support. The Ottawa Police Service, with critical support from the RCMP and OPP, have begun taking enforcement actions. Police officers from across the country, including as far away as Vancouver, are assisting in this important action. Arrests are being made, and the operation is ongoing. What's that? For what? For mischief, counseling to commit the offense of mischief, counseling to commit the offense of obstruct police officer, and uh, counseling to commit the offense of disobey court order. So, could you please step out of the vehicle, sir? Uh, I'd like to get my lawyer on the phone right away. Sir, I have the right to a lawyer. Of course you do. Yeah, so I'd like to call my lawyer presently at this moment in time. I need to make sure everything's safe. So I want oh, you're to safe, man, and you always have been. Yeah, I, I, I really appreciate that. I don't know who your occupants are. I don't know what's in the vehicle. All our hands are free and clear. I have the opportunity right now. I'm being arrested by these officers right now. Uh, this officer here, they've cornered me, had me at the ready, and uh, I'm being arrested. We'll talk to you guys soon. All right, those voices, well, you heard the protesters there, also the voices of Ontario Premier Doug Ford. We heard from the federal minister, Marco Mendicino, and that last voice you heard there was Pat King. He is one of the more high-profile protest organizers. He was arrested earlier today, along with several others. There's also been a lot of footage coming out of Ottawa. There have been pictures of protesters using a snowblower because the city got a lot of snow overnight, and then it one point, protesters were actually building a snow wall to try and keep police back. You've got to think that outside media outlets outside of Canada are going to be making fun of Canadians for that one. A truly Canadian protest where they're making a snow wall to keep the police back. Well, let's find out what is happening now with the very latest. We're checking in with Global News reporter Rachel Gilmore. Rachel, thank you so much for taking some time out of a very busy day to chat with us today. Yeah, of course. Anytime. Can you tell us what is happening in Ottawa right now? Well, uh, the police have been progressively moving in on the protesters. They uh, sort of created this line of sorts where the cops stand shoulder to shoulder and they've been slowly pushing forward to try to clear protesters from certain areas. So, you know, um, when they approach a protester, they say they're moving really slowly, the police that is, to give those protesters the opportunity to leave. If they do not, they might be arrested. And in many cases, they have been. 
Now, it's been pretty slow going. They've only made it about, um, I would say, one or two city blocks. But uh, they are slowly inching closer to Parliament Hill. And I know it's uh, pretty early to get an idea, but it sounds like they, they have made several arrests, uh, as well as arresting some of the protest organizers or the more high-profile protesters at this point. Yes, so the Ottawa police actually just came out uh, about 10 minutes ago with new information on the arrest to date. So there have been 21 arrests and uh, a 21 vehicles towed so far. So that's a pretty significant jump. I believe earlier today there had only been a couple vehicles towed. Um, so they've since uh, been quite busy getting uh, a lot of the cars off the streets. Um, and uh, they've cleared one entire street and are working on two others. So uh, lots of kind of slow but steady movement happening there and uh, hopefully we might be able to see things wrap up towards the end of the day but I'm not so sure because they've been going since about 8 a.m eastern time. Uh, Yeah and I guess the irony there might be that if things do wrap up today and they finish and clear out the protesters uh, I know they suspended the debate on the Emergencies Act there might not need to be a debate if things wrap up today I would imagine. I was wondering about that, too. The vote was supposed to take place Monday night at 8 p.m. to uh, really push ahead with this Emergencies Act. But if they don't have blockades anymore, then they don't really have a reason to use that act in the first place. So I think it'll be a very fluid situation, both on the ground here in Ottawa, as well as, you know, in the parliamentary context where we may or may not see that Emergencies Act actually come to fruition. Uh, do you get the sense that the tone has changed there today? I know uh, I did see earlier on uh, more inflation uh, of bouncy castles. Uh, we, there were some protesters that had a snowblower in one part of the protest. Now with the arrests underway, though, it, does it appear to be a bit of a different tone? Absolutely. Um, you know, in the, the last couple of weeks have been, <laughs> it almost felt like a fever dream. You know, you walk down Wellington Street, there were guys in a hot tub, there was a pig on a roast, there were kids everywhere. They'd even set up, as you mentioned, a bouncy castle and play areas. Um, but now it is a decidedly unfriendly environment for any kids that are still there. And we know there are still some children present, which is really concerning to see because uh, well, there's actually footage circulating that I've seen that showed kids getting sort of uh, caught up in the mix between protesters and cops. Everyone seems to be okay, but it's just worrying seeing kids in that kind of an environment. Lots of protesters getting really frustrated, confronting police, yelling at them, yelling at the media. Um, We're also seeing some of them take a more sort of jokester route. Uh, There was one guy who was dancing with his shirt off uh, facing the riot police. So uh, it's pretty cold out there. So that's not a technique I'd recommend. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a real mixed bag, but overall, definitely a darker atmosphere. Hmm. I, I did see uh, some footage as well with one of the organizers who was passing out the information or telling protesters if they have a white flag, whether it's a T-shirt or something else white, that they could wave that as a sign of surrender when police are moving in. I'm not quite sure if that's the best advice to be giving people taking part <laughs> in the protest, but it, it does seem like there are a lot of uh, different antics, I guess, being used. One thing I've noticed, you know, covering this protest for weeks now, including the lead up to it, was a lot of the language seemed to sort of paint this as a real fight and really paint it with a kind of intensity that, you know, you're hearing in that almost warlike talk of, you know, waving a white flag, which is it's just so interesting because uh, the cops have made it pretty clear. If you just leave, you just go home. 
then you don't need to wave a white flag. You can kind of just take off. <laughs> so, uh, you know, if they want to wave a white flag as they leave, I'm sure that they'd be more than welcome to do so. But uh, they can really just walk out of there and uh, they should be able to avoid arrest. And do you get a sense on who is still there in that it is certainly a mix of people? There were people who were legitimately protesting the vaccine mandates, were protesting the trucker mandates on both sides of the border. Uh, Things did get a little bit, certainly different groups and different people were joining. Do you get a sense of who's still there? There's definitely a real anti-government sentiment there. Um, Lots of also uh, religious undertones, references to God, um, it, which is kind of an interesting facet of this. But um, the predominant sentiment is that they're really angry at Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. So it's uh, it's interesting to watch because as you know, I've been covering this since the start and the demands have just shifted and shifted and shifted, ranging from calling on the government to resign en masse to, you know, just the trucker mandates to all of the mandates to anti-vaccine misinformation being spouted. There were lots of people that seemed to just come up for the weekends and treat it almost like a party. And whenever I spoke with them, they seem to have been getting a lot of misinformation online and, and, and just not really understand the facts on the ground when it comes to vaccination and it being safe and effective. Um, so there's a lot of different things going on here, and it almost feels like, you know, the misinformation that we've been seeing circulating everywhere these days. You know, everyone talks about their, you know, they have that one uncle who spends a little too much time on Facebook, and uh, we're kind of seeing a bit of a fruition of that in some ways on the ground here. While there are some genuine opponents to mandates who are very focused on that, there's also a lot of that kind of misinformation mixed in. All right. Well, Rachel, thanks so much for joining us and taking a few minutes with us to keep us up to date on this. We will be watching and tuning in for the rest of the day as well. But thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us on this Friday afternoon. Well, my next guest is the operator of an overdose prevention site. And after having to move just last year, the site has been told a move is now another move is needing to happen again. So what is causing this and what might be the outcome of that? Sarah Blythe joins us now, the operator of the OPS. Sarah, thank you so much for coming back on the program. Hi, yeah. I mean, uh, we did just move and uh, we've settled in and and uh, we, we're a very good neighbor and uh, we're just, uh, we've just been told that we may have to move in March. Um, it's a really large space for people who are homeless and drug users and we even have a bathroom that hundreds of people use every day. And uh, yeah, we've been told that we may have to move in March because uh, the the people who own a lot have found someone that they would like to rent the the lot to. So um, we've been given notice, and uh, now we're just scrambling to find another place for people to go. But uh, yeah, we see hundreds and hundreds of people a day at and this site. So can yeah. you explain for people that aren't familiar with this site where exactly is it located and what happens there? Uh, so we're on Pender and. Uh, 99 so right kitty corner to uh, mcdonald's right next to tinseltown um we see hundreds of people every day um we make sure that people that are in the area that are drug users uh have a place to go that if they're using drugs and they have an overdose we help them we we help many people with overdoses there every day 
Um, we give a place for people to be off the street, that they can be comfortable, get medical help. We help them with housing. We, they have a bathroom so that they're not using the alley or different places to go to the washroom. So it's a quite a quite a great uh place and a lot of work that we do and we even hold memorials there weekly for all the people that are dying so it's it's uh it's very challenging at a time where more people are dying than ever to have to pick up and move a service that is really the bare minimum that we should be providing at this point it's a lot of stress um it's uh it's you know the crisis continues the ambulances continue to go non-stop um and now we have to move again, which is really, really difficult. And is there even a space where you could move to that's still in the same area or the same neighborhood? Um, yeah, we're, you know, obviously uh, Vancouver Coastal Health and the city are doing what they can to help us find a space. But um, at the end of the day, it's not that entirely easy to find a space that can house everything. So we're just doing whatever we can to make it happen. But again, Right now, we're dealing with overdoses all day, every day. So it's just another stressful situation on top of another stressful situation on top of another. It's another crisis among the many crises that we've been facing down here, including COVID and the heat and the cold and everything else. Yeah. Homelessness. So it's, you know, it's, it's, um, it's almost unbearable, um, all of the stress that we have to go through. And I mean, this comes as we just got the latest numbers from the BC coroner. And even, you know, she said, and she said this before, that the current strategy isn't working. It's not saving lives. Like you said, we're seeing so many deaths caused by this. Um, what do you think the impact will be then if this, if you have to move the the ops and it's not going to be there or it's not going to be in the same place to help people? Well, I think, you know, as long as we have a place, I really don't think we can spend one day without a service um, because we see hundreds of people every day. People will certainly die because of that. It's not entirely easy to move from one place to another because it does affect, uh, you know, there's different drug users in different communities and, and, and just it's it's complicated to have to do that. It's also, you know, we have to set up... Um, where we're going to be with the, the bathroom and everything. It's just, it's a huge, huge undertaking to move what we're doing. And um, so it's just another stress on top of everything else. And so who is, is currently your landlord or who is it that's telling you that you may have to move next month? So there's, there's three levels. There's Reef who owns the lot. They're from the States. And then there's Ken Stone, who is uh, in Vancouver, and then it's an impart lot. So um, I think that they have someone approached them um, offering more money or, you know, a, a generous amount of money to rent the lot that we're on. And so it's it basically it comes down to money over saving lives. And uh, in my opinion, so it, it's just uh, it's it's just a sad situation and uh, I, I hope you know the, the best outcome is that they change their mind and uh, let us stay even for the summertime would be great right and and they haven't said to you this is what the the rent is going to be or this is what we've been offered for this lot and given you the option or or to even see if you could meet that or or match what they might have been offered from this other group yeah, yeah I, I think that um, you know I'm not really in the middle of those negotiations, but um, 
I think that what what they're asking is is a quite a large amount, and um, I mean, obviously, everything is worth saving people's lives, and uh, and I think people are doing the best to match. But I think the 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 amount that they're they're you know looking at with the other uh, folks that want to go in there is is a quite a bit larger amount and, and an unreasonable amount um, for us to have to pay. So. Um, it, you know, it's just, uh, it's you know, there's a negotiation happening. Hopefully, um, they understand that be- being part of saving lives is a is really important part to the city, um, and uh, and we can come to some agreement. But if not, it doesn't look like that that's the case. So it looks like uh, we may have to move on. But I'll have more details about that um, in the in the coming, you know, you know, just about what happened exactly happened and. And why and who the new person that's moving in there might be. Okay. Um, for, yeah. for somebody hearing this too, that, and again, maybe isn't all that familiar with the site and what the site does, is it, say, complementary to Insight or is there a reason why somebody would go to your site rather than go to Insight? Well, our site, uh, you know, we hire people for the community to help each other. So we hire drug users to help with overdoses and it's very much a grassroots community effort whereas insight is is you know it's there's a lot of rules and um it's a good it's really a good facility as well but um you know it's just a different a different scenario we have a big outdoor space that people can sit in on a picnic tables and they can go to the bathroom and it's run by the people for the people and, um, you know, uh, uh, Insight is more clinical because it had to be in order to be um, created. Um, so it's you've got nurses and all those things that people also need. And so they're both very needed, but um, they're both very different. And um, so and we see up to more than uh, most sites, we see up to 900 people a day at all three of our sites mm. in the downtown east side. And, and that by far is the biggest one. And, you know, hundreds of people using the bathroom every day where they wouldn't have another place to go, especially with COVID. Um, you know, not a lot of people have passports, so they are not haven't been able to get into other bathrooms. So it's really important to have bathrooms in the downtown east side. So there's a lot of services that we provide there that are really important. All right. So- and. I wanted to ask you one other question too, kind of, and you touched on this in that given where we are with overdoses and how important it is to have these sites, the coroner mentioned also during that news conference that because the the drugs currently are mixed with so many different things that they're finding that naloxone oftentimes isn't working because it's not actually opioids that that is cut into the drugs. Are you seeing that as well in, in far, as far as difficulties actually saving people? Yeah, I mean it's it's usually a con- uh, like a combination, and and yes, it's um, you know people are are they don't know what they're taking. Um, if we give them naloxone, it helps with the opiate, but not the benzos that are in, in that are really um, you know in almost all the drugs now. It's a very lethal com- combination, and it's very widespreadly being used now. So it's just kind of a really uh, terrible situation again um on top of everything else and a lot of people are smoking now and our site's the only smoking site so i guess that would uh, make it different than inside as well is that we're a big huge open area where people can smoke and if something happens um, we can uh, make sure that someone's there immediately to help them out 
um, watching over everything, even using the washroom and everything else. So, When will you find out, do you think, if you will have to move or what's next for the site? Uh, gosh, in the, in the coming days, uh, any day now, we'll, we'll, and probably by end of March, we would have to move out. Um, so that it's really a short time frame. And um, we'll be finding out where we're going. We'll be finding out um, everything else. Hopefully we find a new spot. I definitely uh, am prepared to uh, fight for people to have a place because obviously um, I'm not going to watch people die after all of this. We cannot lose a smoking site, especially because of the numbers of smokers is so much higher than it used to be. And, and uh, so it's just a, it's just another challenge, and, uh, you know, we're used to a fight. So, I mean, it's really the bare minimum that we should be offering people is saving them. Um, there's so much more that we should be doing. So it's, it's, it's kind of hard to be fighting for something that, uh, that um, should just be, you know, we should just be saving people. All right. Well, Sarah, we will uh, stay tuned to see what happens next with the site. But thanks so much for taking the time and for talking with us today. All right. Thank you, Jill. Well, not a huge surprise to anyone, I think, when we look at rental rates and how expensive it is to rent in parts of Metro Vancouver. And some new reports are showing that not only are rents on the rise, it's also becoming more difficult to find rentals. A new report on the rental market today shows the vacancy rate in Vancouver. Well, it is just very difficult for people to find a place and to find a place that is affordable. So let's talk more about this with Robert Patterson legal advocate and lawyer with the Tenant Resource and Advisory Centre. Robert, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so we've seen this in a, in a couple of different places and a new report, the rental market report out today. We also saw a rentals.ca report recently that takes a look at the average rents, a one-bedroom home in Vancouver, uh, just north of $2,100, a two-bedroom, more than $3,000. What are your thoughts on what we're seeing as far as where rents are right now? For sure. I mean, I think it's an indication that the, the housing crisis that the province and the city have been in since, you know, prior to the pandemic has only gotten worse, uh, in part thanks to some of the pressures put on the housing market by COVID-19. Um, and I think, it, I mean, we can look at the, the rise and the dramatic rise in rents over the last, uh, you know, 12 or 24 month period uh, as a sort of indication of what's going wrong with the housing market. And what is going wrong with it, do you think? So we think that you can sort of, uh, the way that in the rents work in British Columbia is that during a tenancy, rents can only increase uh, a legislated amount. And so for the last two years, uh, prior to 2022, it was 0%, and this year it's 1.5%. So the fact that we're seeing an increase above that means that two things are happening. First, long-term tenancies where these where rent increases will be controlled are ending. And, you know, we know that, that we, we actually know that that's happening in large part due to mass evictions. There's a study out of the University of British Columbia that came out in September of last year that showed that Vancouver is the eviction capital of Canada uh, and that people who are evicted also tend to be displaced from their communities. They tend to have to move further away and into less affordable housing. Uh, I think it also shows that as these average rents go up, we can see that when newer units are coming onto the market, they're not coming on at affordable rents. They're coming on at rents that are deep unaffordable for people in their communities. And 
Um, it's not sort of a, a market where you can put more of uh, expensive units on the market and expect a tenant to move from a cheaper unit to a more expensive unit just because it's come available. So putting an expensive unit on the market does not create or free up any affordable units. It just is a unit that is not affordable to begin with. Um, so I think those two fa- uh, forces together, um, so ending older tenancies where tenants are paying affordable rent and only really replacing them uh, with units that are at these higher rents, either because it's a new market unit on the market or because a landlord relists an old unit for any price they want because we don't have control between tenancies. Um, That's what's leading to this, this marked rise and this spike in rents. Uh, so when you talk about that uh, as well, that report or the UBC study that, that uh, referred to I, uh, Vancouver as the eviction capital of Canada. So what's causing that, though? Because uh, mm-hmm. we, I think we tend to want to believe that there are those checks and balances and protections in place so that people aren't just evicted because the landlord wants to raise the rent. For sure. And I think that there there are protections in place for tenants. And I would say that any tenant uh, who gets a notice to end tenancy under the Residential Tenancy Act, they have the right to file and to begin a, a legal proceeding to dispute it. The problem is that there is a massive incentive for a landlord to want to end a tenancy to increase the rent. And we've seen, though the government has taken some good actions to prevent uh, some tactics that bad faith landlords have used in the past to try and end tenancies simply for re-renting. So for example, um, in the rental housing report that came out in 2018, targeting rent evictions was really big on the government's mind. And the government has instituted a change in, in the act as of last summer that actually does make it much more difficult for landlords to, uh, in bad faith, try and end a tenancy just because they want to do renovations. It now requires, instead of a, a landlord just serving a notice on a tenant and requiring the tenant to begin the legal process, now the landlord is the one that has to begin that process. And even if they're successful at the end of the day, a tenant gets a reasonable amount of time to be able to find another place. What we're seeing is a lot of these sort of bad faith tactics are shifting to the two-month notice. That's for a landlord's use of properties, when a landlord says that they intend to move in themselves or have a close family member move in. In those cases, tenants, even when they might challenge them, it can be very difficult because of a number of sort of procedural fairness issues in the process. So for example, a tenant has to serve all their evidence first on a landlord. It's even on a tenant to be the one to begin that legal process, even though the landlord is the one that serves the notice. Um, And at the end of the day, the decision-making at the residential tenancy branch isn't always the most consistent on that point. Um, And tenants do sometimes do have the recourse that if they can show that, uh, or if a landlord can't show that they actually did move in, they can get up to 12 months of rent as compensation. But the challenge is there that for a landlord who may want to have a, a much older unit at very affordable rent might think that accept paying that compensation even because they can relist it for such a higher price. So I think there needs to be a, a couple changes in that process made to make sure to protect tenants further. First, we should need the simple step of requiring landlords to be the one to get the ball rolling in a legal sense, make them have to, to begin the process and actually have to prove to someone that they really do intend to move in. Right now, there is no requirement to prove that before you serve a notice. Um, and second, uh, if there's going to be compensation paid to tenants where their tenancies are ended improperly, uh, it should be based not just on what their current rent is, but somehow based on how much profit seeking the landlord might get from that new unit to make sure we're disincentivizing bad faith actors who just want to make a lot more money. So something like if you had to pay out that month of rent, paying out the increased price, not the price that the tenant was paying? 
that would be exactly that would be one uh, one, one uh, I think appropriate measure to make sure that uh, exactly that someone's not sort of seeking improper profit that there really is uh, a disincentive to do that. And when you talked about that too, so if a landlord gives somebody two months notice and says, look, uh, really sorry, but I'm moving into this unit. So you've got two months to get out and find a new place to live. Could the landlord then not make the argument or would that then fall and they'd have to pay the year's rent if they, if something changed and they said, I really did intend on moving in there. My life situation has changed, so I'm not going to, and I'm going to rent it out to somebody else now. Absolutely. So there is a provision in the act that a landlord can be excused from paying the compensation if there's extenuating circumstances that prevent them from being able to use the unit in the way they said they would. Um, so there is that control for fairness. Um, and, you know, I think the way that's supposed to be interpreted is something has to actually prevent the landlord from doing it. They can't just sort of change their mind after the fact on a, on a, on a whim, as it were. Uh, but from decisions I've seen at the residential tenancy branch, I think in general, arbitrators are taking a, a reasonable and common sense approach to that uh, to make sure that people aren't being unfairly punished because of some you know, dramatic event that's happened in their lives that prevents them from, from doing what they said they would do. What about the issue of supply? Would this not be helped if we had more supply, uh, rental housing, rental stock and more of that built and getting more of those units on the market? It is a really good question. I would say that the the uh, the supply side approach is the approach that has been taken for the last I mean, throughout this rental crisis, and it hasn't delivered the results, it hasn't gotten us out of the problem. And I think you can see that's why that is. Putting new units on the market, if they're coming in unaffordable rates, a tenant isn't going to move out of an affordable unit to move into an unaffordable unit. So, and even if they do, if they move out, that landlord can charge market rent, that new unaffordable rent for the unit they vacate. So it's challenging. There, I, you know, in, in, indeed, supply in general is a problem and is an issue that has to be solved. But the real solution has to be through affordable supply. So there needs to be housing that is created that we can be guaranteed is going to be affordable for people. And that needs to I think we need to broaden our horizons and look for more different kinds of market intervention to provide that. So uh, I know a lot of groups have talked about this and a lot of proposals have been put forward. But things that look at, you know, trying to get publicly funded housing or using support and incentives for creation of things like co-op housing, non-market housing that we can be sure is going to be affordable because it's not entering the housing market directly, but it's going to, is tied to sort of tethered to fundamentals of, of affordability. Those are kind of solutions that need to be explored because right now just pouring in more luxury priced units isn't actually providing affordability. And so we're really talking about different types of housing there too, aren't we? In that, in, mm-hmm. on the one hand, we're not really talking about the the family with a basement suite who are just trying to to pay the mortgage and need that mortgage helper suite, as opposed to say a purposely rental uh, built building that that's done with either public money or that's done as a collaboration or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think yeah. In terms of how we get around, how we regulate that sort of secondary rental market versus the primary rental market is a really important factor that needs to be taken into account. And the same solutions aren't going to work for both sides. Um, I think yeah, there are many, many cases where you have very strong landlord-tenant relationships in those kind of small small case scenarios. You have a landlord living upstairs and a tenant living downstairs. Um, 
and you know I, nothing nothing I want to say should take away from that and how successful many of those those tendencies are. Um, but at the same time, we do have to recognize that once that rental unit goes on the market, it is subject to those market forces. And while we don't necessarily it may may not be the right answer to go in and and hyper regulate everything, you know there there needs to be more in, intervention to at least cool the market in general through the provision of affordable affordable options. Or you know we can also take start to take steps like have just been taken in Montreal that's just requiring every landlord to be licensed and to uh, make proactive reports about how much rent they're charging and the, the uh, repairs and maintenance that they're doing. So we can at the very least have a better overall sense of what, you know, what the rents are, how well are units being maintained and what's happening to rent between tenancies. Because in many cases, it can be, the data is, is a bit scarce. That UBC study that came out last fall is in many ways the first sort of data about eviction in BC we have because a lot, all of the, the legal processes for people getting evicted aren't sort of held in open court. Um, so it can be challenging to know exactly what's going on, which also factors into figuring out what the answer is. And do you think with what we saw during the pandemic with the freeze on rental increases, with the the freeze on evictions when it seems so long ago, but it wasn't really that long ago that those measures were brought in, is there a chance that could backlash in that now there will be inevitably landlords who say, well, we don't have the money now to make these repairs or to to improve these suites? Is there a possibility that that could end up having some negative consequences? I mean, I think that for landlords who were willing to turn to things like illegal rent increases or trying to evict tenants to raise the rent in to look for more profit in the first place, I'm not sure that the rent freeze is going to be sort of push more landlords towards those kind of illegal activities. The government has brought in a, a new additional rent increase for landlords who are doing major capital repairs uh, to the building to try and alleviate some of those pressures. Um, but I mean, ultimately, yeah, it's it's it is a challenging uh, balancing act, um, and it, you know, it's something that does need to be worked out through policy and through figuring out. I think getting a better picture of what are the state of repair in in a lot of these buildings because right now there we don't have a sort of proactive way of gathering that data it's really a reactive seeing who's coming to the branch and having those issues so having more data about the problem i think is especially when it comes to repairs and things like that is is sort of the first step um but uh yeah there there it's a lot of different sort of elements of support uh and and tools to use to try and intervene in the market uh, need to be on the table to sort of solve the housing crisis that has you know, persisted now for over a decade. All right, Robert Patterson, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Well, my next guest has written a book and it was inspired by a story I think everyone in BC certainly has heard about and has been touched by and talking about the death of Amanda Todd. It was a few years ago, but this new book inspired by that aims to help teenagers and make sure teenagers know that they can reach out if they need help. Well, joining me to talk about how this book came to be is Katie Cooperman, the author of this book. Katie, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Joe. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, take us back to the beginning on how you were first inspired or how you even started with the idea of putting this book together. Absolutely. So I'll actually never forget the day I was at the gym. I was on the elliptical and I was just catching up with a little bit of news on my phone. And it was then that I came across uh, Amanda Todd's story more specifically, her very heart-wrenching flashcard video on YouTube, where she really walks you right through everything that she had experienced and what she was going through. And it was just that moment right there where I realized that this 
young, beautiful, everything going for her girl was no longer with us. And, you know, then read a little bit more about her story and what had happened. And I began crying right there at the gym and I, I couldn't control it. I was deeply moved by this story. And for quite some time before that, I knew I wanted to write a book, but I didn't know what to write about. And it was that very day after that experience that I went home and I felt compelled and I, I knew what I wanted to write about. I knew I wanted to write about bullying. And were you already a writer at that point? Yes. So I have been a writer for about 15 years now. I run a copywriting business in Toronto, Ontario, and it's through that business that I help other clients of mine bring their stories to life, whether it's their business or a personal story. I've ghostwritten books before, ghostwritten chapters for guest books and so forth. So I think that was also part of it where, you know, I had for so many years helped my clients bring all different kinds of stories to life in different ways and through different platforms. And I really wanted to do that for myself, too. Uh, so how did it go then from deciding uh, that you wanted to write this book and then you, you realized what the theme was going to be or what the focus was going to be to actually having the discipline and sitting down and making it happen? Yeah, so I think, you know, the discipline part of it, once I felt really compelled by what I wanted to write about, uh, the passion and, and my experience with writing from that point really took me to the next step, which was really, you know, in all my spare time after I was finished with client work, be that on evening and weekends, you know, I would sit down and, and write and continue writing this book. And I think one of the most interesting parts about that experience for me, if I think back to that, was the fact that, you know, they say in the writing world, you're either a plotter or you're a pantser. So you either sit down before you're going to start writing your book or your masterpiece, and you say to yourself, here's exactly what I'm going to go through. Here's chapter one, two, three, four, five, et cetera or here are all the different sections and points I'm going to cover. With this book, I did not do that. I was a pantser, which is the type of writer who sits down and starts writing and literally lets that journey and that experience take you forward into something you don't know what it's going to be yet. So when I sat down and started writing, I didn't know that I was going to be touching on highly medical issues of, of what could happen um, after certain tragic experiences with bullying or physical assault. I didn't know that it was going to start touching on mental health issues. I, I really, I just let the journey take me and I let that experience guide me into all these different depths. And then, you know, finally at the end, this um, energy and positivity and inspiration and motivation that happens at the end into a message that is extremely important, I believe. And I, I would go so far as to say that I believe that this message that I'm trying to promote through this book by you know, having readers read a story that will hopefully resonate them, resonate with them in many different ways. One of which is I really want to touch on people's emotions. I want people to feel something when they read this book. And it does take you on that ride. And finally, you know, the message I'm really trying to promote is that it may not be the full solution and it may not be everything, but I believe that the first step that we need to take in order to combat bullying and mental health issues and struggles is to talk. We must take that first step, and that is to talk, because if we don't talk, whether we are the bully, whether we're the person being bullied, whether we're the one that's struggling mentally, or whether we're the one noticing a friend in trouble, if we don't take that first step to talk and communicate, no other progress can be made. 
And yet, if we do take that, then the possibilities are endless from that point. So even though it looks at some very, or it includes some very real issues uh, that you touched on there, bullying, mental health, and it's inspired by a true story, it's a, a fictional account. So how did you kind of come up with the characters that play so prominently in the book? So yes, you know, um, Amanda Todd, it was her story that inspired me to write, but it is certainly not her story. However, um, you know, Carol Todd will tell you as well that it's definitely, it touches on certain similar experiences. And in terms of the main characters, um, when it came to setting the stage of those two main characters that, that start at high school together, they are really good friends, you know, going into high school together. Um, I pulled a little bit from my real life feelings and experiences. So uh, I had a next door neighbor who I could draw on those kind of experiences with so that I could really build up that friendship, build up that relationship so that it would feel real to my readers. Having said that, no other part of the story is true. It's really um, just sort of setting that stage and setting that relationship. So I was thinking back to those moments. And in some moments, the way that I describe the high school is the way that my high school looked. So certain things like that I pulled from real life experiences again, just for that, that realism and that impact. Um, from that point forward, um, it's a fictional story that, that, that came to me that I, I took this writing journey in order to create. And I understand that before it was published, before it came out, you did reach out to Amanda Todd's mom, to Carol Todd. What was her reaction to what you had written? Yes, yeah, so when it came time for me to put my novel into print, Quite literally, before I hit that submit button to my publisher, I, I paused and I thought, I just came very, I became very much consumed by this idea that I might be able to honor Amanda's name. And so I reached out to Carol Todd, first through the Amanda Todd Legacy Society, which I was already familiar with. It was difficult to sort of get, get through to her from there. And it was, it was actually my husband who said, you know what, why don't you try to find her on social media, see if you can reach out to her and privately message her on one of these platforms. And that's exactly what I did. It was through Facebook. We initially connected. Um, I found her. I messaged her. I told her exactly who I was and what I had written and what I wanted to do. I sent her a few sa sample chapters of the book. And I was absolutely thrilled when, you know, she got back to me. She said that she would be honored. And, and now my book is dedicated to my two children and to Amanda Todd. And I understand parts of the proceeds will also help out the Amanda Todd Legacy Society? That's absolutely right. So, you know, since that point where Carol and I first connected, um, you know, she had her silent auction that she held through the society in October. She asked if she could put a couple of the books in there. I was thrilled and honored to do that. That was, that was great. And then it was after that that I, I reached back out to her. And now we're in this donation partnership where, yes, a part of all book sale proceeds will go to the Amanda Todd Legacy Society. And um, that makes me very happy and, and gives me a, an extra added meaning of, of purpose behind what I'm doing, you know, to know that I'm not only now spreading a message, not only trying to, um, you know, promote a book that I believe does carry with it that, that message, that weight to help people maybe get through a tough time in their lives. And, and it, it is um, covering two of the biggest social issues I think faced by our youth today right now, and that's bullying and mental health. And so the fact that it's now also giving back to a foundation that I know 
does so much incredible work right on the ground with other youth who are struggling either with mental health um, or with bullying. Uh, It just gives me that added sense of purpose behind what I'm doing. And who do you think would benefit most from reading the book? What age group? Or is it for everybody? So it's a little bit of both. I would say when when I wrote it and, you know, now seeing it in its finished form and and getting feedback from, from readers so far, I do believe that it is best suited to 12 to 13 all the way through to 18 plus. Having said that, I have had people recently tell me that perhaps it might still be suitable for kids a little bit younger than that. So maybe grade six, maybe maybe even grade five. You know, kids are growing up so fast these days. I think that if they would be able to read something like this and if it could touch them in the way that I hope that it could, then perhaps that would be a great message before entering high school. And then beyond that, um, so far I've received very positive feedback from parents. It's really resonated with them because they have children or also for people that maybe experienced something, um, some kind of adversity in high school, it, it, it resonates with them. And then teachers, educators, anti-bullying and mental health advocates and influencers all across the board. I think it really is for, for everyone. And I do think in some small way that a lot of people these days, no matter who you are, you might be able to, to resonate and relate and appreciate a book like this just because we're seeing so much of this happen in, in real life right now. And it's, it's heartbreaking. And, and I feel that as a society, I hope that we are moving towards some form of meaningful change. All right. The book is called The Only Way Out. Uh, can people buy it at all the regular places or where can people get it? You got it. Yes. Amazon, Indigo, two of the biggest outlets and easiest places in Canada, I would say. And um, there's also my website if you wanted to get more information, www.theonlywayoutnovel.com. All right. Well, Katie, thank you so much for joining us and for talking more uh, about this today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Jill. I really, really appreciate it. It's been an honor.